1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to New Books Network. My name is Clayton Girard. My pronouns are he, him. And today I am interviewing Dr. Mara Mills and Dr. Rebecca Sanchez, editors of the new book. Crip Authorship Disability as Method. Crip Authorship Disability as Method is an expansive volume presenting the multidisciplinary methods brought into being by disability studies and activism. Starting from the premise that disability is plural and authorship spans composition, affect, and publishing, this collection of 35 compact essays asks how knowledge and disability is produced and shared in disability studies. Disability alters, generates, and dismantles method. Crip authorship takes place within and beyond the commodity version of authorship in books, on social media, and in creative works that will never be published. The chapters draw on the expertise of international researchers and activists in the humanities, social sciences, education, arts, and design. So thank you both so much for being here with me today. I really just want to start off by saying how much I enjoyed the book and how thought-provoking it was. So kudos to both of you for bringing such an amazing book into the world. And I do want to mention that we do have a full transcript of this interview linked in the show notes. So if it is more accessible for you to follow along with the written transcript, we do have that available. I wonder if we could begin the interview with each of you just telling us a little bit about yourself.
2: Thanks, Clayton. Um, Thanks so much for inviting us to New Books Network. I've been following this um, platform for a long time. And also thanks for your enthusiasm about crip authorship um, leading up to and now now here um, in this interview and your great questions. Um, So, yeah, um, I'll just start with a little introduction and also an access check in. Um, I'm Mara Mills. Uh, I'm a historian and a professor in the Media Studies Department at New York University. I also co-direct the Center for Disability Studies at NYU. I will briefly self-describe since this is a podcast and um, everyone is going to be relying on either audio or captions. I'm a middle-aged white woman, I have brown curly hair. I'm sitting in front of a white wall in my NYU faculty apartment in the village. And my co-editor and friend, Rebecca Sanchez, is um, unwell and can't join us today. But her ASL interpreter, Jody Prysock, um, is here and is going to voice her responses, which Rebecca um, kindly wrote out in advance. And we're really delighted that we can um, model access in this podcast since we've edited a book, as Clayton explained, specifically focused about methods in disability studies, um, scholarship and arts and publishing. And um, one section of the book even focuses on media. We have two chapters on accessible podcasting, um, one's by podcaster B. M. M and the, the other by a scholar and memoirist. Georgina Klieg. So we'll see if we are able to enact the strategies they recommend in those chapters in this podcast. Um, And I'll just say um, to introduce Rebecca in her absence, um, she's a full professor of disability studies and English at Fordham University um, uptown from me um, about 90 blocks uptown.
0: Awesome. Thank you for that introduction. And yes, I'm excited for how we can hopefully model access through this interview. And yeah, thank you for that introduction. And I'm just super excited to dive into this conversation. I was wondering to really just lay the groundwork for where we're going to go throughout the conversation. If you could tell us about how this book came about for both of you.
1: So we are both interested in questions of how knowledge about disability is produced and shared in disability studies and activism. What forms and methods have emerged out of disability expertise and conversations about reading, writing, genre, publishing, and media? There's so many people across different areas of expertise and lived experience doing amazing work on method. And we wanted to bring some of that discourse together in a way that highlighted the exciting diversity of thought on which Crip methods can entail. And that made these conversations accessible, both in terms of having lots of ideas in one place that is available, open access to anyone who wants to explore, and in having shorter two to 4,000 word chapters. One of those methods, which comes up several times in the book, is collective authorship. This was a project we undertook entirely during the COVID-19 pandemic from our first uh, Zoom meeting where the contributors had a chance to share ideas with one another through to publication. It was an opportunity to be in community with one another and with all the contributors during a time when our communities were, are so acutely under threat. It seemed a particularly important moment to explicitly consider how we do the work that we do in active, academic and activist spaces. What are the ways that we read? What are the ways we produce and disseminate information accessibility? Accessibly, excuse me. Both how have these methods emerged out of people's lived experiences and what we want that work to involve moving forward
2: hi this is mara again yeah um the pandemic was definitely part of the context clayton um especially all of the activism around disability expertise that was um surfacing um, on social media during the pandemic Um, i'm thinking about hashtag campaigns like um, disabled people told you um addressed to like a very wide audience on twitter um And among other platforms, um, you know, promoting examples of disability foresight um, or practices regarding um, chronic illness or things like uh, remote work. Um, But also all the in-group mutual aid that was happening uh, at that time. Um, So, you know, all the disability activists creating syllabi and prepper lists and doing the work that Stacy Milburn calls Cryptoula-ing mentoring um, newly ill and disabled people about how to get by in a in a hostile world. Um, so, yeah, disability as method was the milieu we were living in when we started working on this collection. Um, it wasn't just like an idea we were imposing on a set of academic texts um, and these community based methods, especially during uh, the first year of the pandemic, the pause period in New York, um, Um, these community-based methods, um, aren't just about giving advice. They're not just about like enacting protocols. Um, many of them were, took place in networks. They were very much relational. Um, they took the form of, uh, access intimacy, a term many of us use in the book. It's Mia Mingus's term for meeting someone else's needs. So that's one part of the context for sure. But, um, also you know rebecca and i have both just been wanting and talking about wanting an interdisciplinary methods book to teach in our disability studies classes for many years Uh, we both got jobs around the same time in new york Uh, this was maybe 12 years ago and that's when we met and um we launched disability studies minors and centers at our universities you know in conversation with each other um we're we are both part of a broader New York network of disability studies. And you know, through those exchanges, we've been in conversation for a long time about theory and method and pedagogy um, and um, re- really wanting more um, method. I'll just say that um, you know the work we do for our minors is much more interdisciplinary than the way we had been trained. So Rebecca was trained in literature, and I was trained in history. Um, so, you know, by virtue of running minors, we were exposed to all sorts of different methods. And, and we had a sense of wanting to look at commonalities and also um, draw them together to look at their differences in in one book. Um, and, and I should just keep returning to the fact that this book also moves beyond university walls. It's not not just academic methods. So... You know, many of the scholars and also activists whose work we teach or otherwise engage with just aren't overt about their methods. In the humanities, it's not that common to have a big method section in your publications. Sometimes people have a small methods section, but usually not. So the methods tend to be implicit in the work of the people we admire. And And we thought, what if we asked people to explain to us, how do you do what you do? And why? Why are you doing what you're doing? What's, why Why is this your method? So, we you know, we wrote to a couple dozen uh, scholars and artists and activists um, internationally to some extent, um, whose work was on our syllabi. Um, it was really great uh, to pair up with Rebecca, just like I said, because we're trained in different fields and we teach in different fields, so we have different networks. We have different, when when Rebecca was thinking method and I was thinking method, we initially had, we were thinking of different things initially. Rebecca was thinking more along the lines of writing and I was thinking of media media and media accessibility as, and a bit, to a certain extent, research methods. Um, so it was great to collaborate on that. And then what we did, we we asked the first set of people we invited um, to if they wanted to invite or recommend other authors for the book. Um, and certainly anyone who couldn't participate, we asked if they had suggestions of other people especially authors in the social sciences, which we our own work doesn't represent, um, and also especially authors working outside North America. Um, we weren't t- entirely successful in um, uh, representing the international field. I mean, the book is 35 chapters long. That's big, but, but still not big enough in a sense. It's in no way comprehensive. Um, I mean, how could it be? Um, But we did want it to be expansive enough um, in terms of uh, field and style and location to just to raise a bunch of essential questions or offer tools and concepts that might be relevant across a lot of fields, across the humanities, social sciences, also librarianship, archiving, and media activism. So, yeah, those... I mean, I could probably go on and on, but that might be enough about the motivation behind the book.
0: Yeah, awesome. I love hearing about the motivation behind the book because it's so interesting to actually have read the book and then hear some of the story about about how it came about Mm -hmm. and the inspiration behind it. So thank you for speaking to that. I love how you mentioned the relationality of disability community and how knowledge production isn't just happening in universities, but in activism as well and on social media and everything else. And I would love to continue along that thread in our next question, if you wouldn't mind. Um, Would you be able to talk about the ways in which this book thinks about and practices, contextualizes and troubles this term of authorship?
1: This is Jody speaking for Rebecca. We organized the book around the idea of authorship in part because it's fraught with disability contexts. Not all people are able to assert legal authorship to claim copyright of their work. Models of the single author creating alone, the monographs so fetishized in academic spaces, don't work or isn't desirable in many disability contexts. At the same time, ideas about authorship are linked to agency and have been vital in many disabled people's assertion of their agency. And we thought it might give us a way of thinking together lots of different kinds of disability creation and creation that emerges out of experiences of body-mind, non-normativity that don't use the word disability.
2: Thanks, yeah, hi, this is is Mara again. Um, yeah, I mean when we asked initially when we asked people to talk about their methods, what peop, what our authors felt was um disability specific or crip specific about their method um varied really widely from their own experiences as writers to um research methods that they had learned or or altered or um Um, you know, hybrid research methods that they had combined from their training with, with disability theory. And we found that authorship was a, a very um, convenient umbrella for pulling together these, these different phases of um, the process of doing work, publishing, in some cases, publishing work or exhibiting work um, from like research all the way through putting things, you know, Posting things on media or publishing things on media. So authorship on the on the one hand was the umbrella for all of these different methods. Um, but we also, you know, putting together the table of contents and starting to draft the introduction, we initially were using the word authorship in a pretty casual way amongst ourselves, um, a colloquial way, really to refer to like writing and other forms of composition. I mean, not just writing, because um, Disabled people um, have been, um, some disabled people are excluded from certain modes of of writing. So lots of modes of composition we wanted to encompass. Also, you know, not just creating books, but performance and music, um, those kinds of authorship too. Um, And as a media scholar, I was also thinking about publishing formats and accessibility, but um, almost immediately, as um, Rebecca mentioned, we, we had to start considering the legal definition of authorship too. Um, especially c- a copyright, because some of our authors in the book have guardians, and um, this made signing contracts with NYU Press, but rather complicated. And it really like immediately foregrounded the difference between authorship as composition, and authorship as a legal status and um, a part of the production of a commodity, a you know a published book, um, and also authorship as something that. Um, in the composition sense anyone can take part in, in in the and but in the legal sense, certain people are very much excluded from. So authorship became um, it was an umbrella for us and but it, it, we're simultaneously critiquing the, that the legal Western legal definition of that term and trying to proliferate other forms of disability definitions uh, um, of of that term. So, yeah, we we started looking into scholarship on um legal authorship and you know, for me trained in you know went to college in the 1990s, I have to say I was trained at this moment when there was like massive scholarship about um the so-called author function among Foucaultians. It was like the 1990s heyday of post-structural literary theory. And going back to some of that, I was really surprised to find almost nothing written about disabled authorship. We talk about that very briefly in the introduction. Um, so we started thinking about, you know, who is an author? What is the author function? Um, re- re-asking some of those like Foucauldian questions and um, uh, thinking about legal authorship from a disability perspective. Um, you know, We wanted to know what are the barriers posed by the publishing industry um and also the commodity version of the book who's allowed to have copyright what formats can even be copyrighted we have um deaf blind authors in our book we have one a- a chapter on protactile um how can protactile be copyrighted if it's not able to be in a fixed medium of reproduction which is at the heart of copyright the ch- our chapter is more of a des- is a description of protactile it's not actually protactile in any Um, real way so that raised another question for us so you know how does the legal definition of authorship also hinder publishing in accessible formats that was a real question that we had to grapple with because we wanted the book to be accessible in all of it 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 published in multiple formats ebooks of which there are many kinds also open access ebooks not just you know paid subscription jstor kinds of ones the, you know, selling, we get, many of us signed our copyright away to the press. So that means the press then gets to decide how the book is published and you have to really negotiate um, to have an accessible book under those conditions and often raise a ton of money to have an accessible book under those conditions. So <laughs> the legal definition of authorship really, we came head to head with it, it about regarding um, co- a copyright for our own authors, but also just the publishing process. Um Yeah, and then when we were writing the introduction and trying to synthesize, maybe that's the wrong word, (laughs) trying to find patterns across the 35 chapters in our introduction, there's just no way to synthesize them all. This isn't that kind of edited volume. Um, I've, you know, I've edited books that have a very tight argument before. This is more like a party. (laughs) And it's... um, it, we have a through line for readers based on the sections of the book, and we have several patterns that emerge, but it's more like an introduction of many methods than a, an attempt to distill one true crip method that just goes against the grain of what crip theory is. So as we were you know, writing the intro, we were not coming up with a universalized definition of authorship, it, definitely not a universalized definition of crip authorship you know we not even to the extent of saying hey it's anti assimilationist like we we in a sense that even that doesn't carry through across all of our um articles because as you see from the structure of the book authorship is a process it has many phases um and one can be excluded from some or like opposed to some you can be um, non-compliant about some of those phases, but then you can be very much included or assimilated in others. You know, this is a published book. Every single person in the book has is now assimilated into um, the academic publishing industry, even if some elements of their composition process um, or some elements of the research process are cripping what we uh, take to be typical. Um, So it's complicated because authorship spans these different phases to come up with something, a sort of pithy, universalized statement about each, about the whole, the whole series. So we did find some patterns, though, um, uh, and we, there are some sort of strong claims we make about um, crip authorship. So, you know, it can be a mode of critique. Many of our authors are cripping authorship and taking that to be a, a form of critique a critique of mainstream corporate authorship and also a strong critique of digital divides um we have several chapters that that focus heavily on um, on exclusion um Crip authorship can also exist totally outside of corporate publishing We have a number of artists people who are um, focused on publish work I mean public work um, Jpreet Verdi talks about public scholarship other, of our authors are thinking about um, social media, including podcasting, as I mentioned. So uh, a lot of the work is about personal writing, writing for an audience of one, (laughs) writing for a friend, writing for an artist collective, um, work on social media. So some crip authorship is like anti mainstream, anti publishing, anti corporate authorship. Um, It crip authorship, it can sometimes be just about altering publishing conventions. Even though you're still publishing, you're you're altering conventions, but it can also be about innovating entirely new media formats. Um, here, I'm thinking of, of um, the chapter on ASL books, um, or it can be about an innovating entirely new genres like crip hop. Um, and and the other thing that comes up across many of the sections, and this was something that um, I think. Rebecca and I didn't expect, a lot of people take crip authorship to be phenomenological. They understand that to, it, that it's about feelings about authorship, feelings about composition. What is crip about authorship has to do with one's feelings about writing or about composing, or it can be a lot of people write about time, temporal, I should say, not time, capital T, but temporality. So a lot of people talk about the temporality of their composition processes. Um, whether that's really rap- rapid um, rants, fast crip temporality, perseveration, a sort of iterative time. Um, a lot of people write about slow crip time of composing. And then, you know, our opening essay by um, Mimi Kook points out that crip authorship is also about not writing. And I love that. And we wanted to start there. We wanted to start with um, cripping authorship as sometimes writing, but also not <laughs> not writing about rest um or total resistance um so there's sorry that there was no way to be pithy to answer that question it's something we struggled with in the introduction that we have we had convened so many different people and we weren't trying to distill these methods into one true method not at all
0: yeah and i think that's one of the most beautiful parts of the book is like you're saying there wasn't really a synthesis and a complete like tight argument that the book was making, but more of just like showing patterns, showing different points of views and different experiences. I thought that was very illuminating from this book. And I also just want to say that I really appreciate the conversation that you bring up about the legal definition of authorship, because that's not something I had ever really thought about before. And it brings up so many questions and so many new insights or ways of thinking about, um, you know, producing media or being an author and those different things so thank you for going over that and i would love to go deeper into one of the parts of your answers you mentioned about the different sections of the book would you be willing to talk to us about the section specifically that the book is broken into and what inspired these
1: speaking for rebecca we were thinking about some of the methods through which knowledge about disability gets created and shared at as many stages of those processes as we could. So writing, which is a term people maybe most closely associate with authorship, the research practices that might lead to writing or other forms of production, the forms or genres that develop and crypt contexts and that might shape how information is presented, how we publish, and the media and means of communication people use to share that knowledge.
2: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed sort of at the most basic, um, putting this is Mara again, putting together um, the sections of the book. You know, we met with the authors on Zoom. Um, we wrote to people a lot um, individually or if they were, you know, or in, in small pods um, before that. And then we met with the authors. We also met with someone from NYU Press, um, Eric Zinner, our editor. So he would get a sense of the scope of the book and the concerns of so many of the authors about, publishing accessibility. So we did that from the beginning, like before we even submitted a proposal or had a contract. We asked people, you know, what they wanted to write about, um, what their methods are. We had a sense of what we thought people's methods were, but that that wasn't necessarily what people wanted to write about or what 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 they felt their most um, uh, critical or most central preoccupation around method was at that moment. Um, So, yeah, it became clear that, you know, beyond writing, beyond composition, for many of our authors, what was particular to being a disabled um, writer or a scholar or um, what was disability studies informed about their work it had to do with research methods. That was really true for the academics or for others. It had to do with language and style, like literally about diction, word choice. Um, or styles, inventing new styles, inventing new genres, whether that's totally changing academic style. Um, we even think of the way our, you know, even doing an edited collection is is um, such a, it's a real push to get publishers to want to publish an edited collection because they aren't seen as profitable. <laughs> so, you know, calling together this huge collective in a way is an, is an academic intervention, but there are certainly much more radical ones in the book. Um academic writing that really is collective writing um, that mixes in different kinds of diction or ideas of you know autistic rhetoric like perseveration into an academic article, <clears throat> different forms of um, the personal and the impersonal in people's writings. So for a lot of people, it had to do with that language and style. Um, and then many other people felt that the method they wanted to write about had to do with publishing itself the bureaucracy of publishing. I do not think we had anticipated that. Um, we had anticipated that people would talk about media and access, but not necessarily the bureaucracy and ableism of publishing. Um, so we have a whole section on publishing and um, on scholars um, like the Cynthia Wu, you know, working to encourage crip authorship by founding at Temple University Press, a crip publishing series and like recruiting um, authors to it. So it, that's just one example from that section. Um, we didn't want the book to be entirely academic. Um, so, like, research methods, of course, could not be the whole focus, although it's one section. But yeah, we, under that theme of authorship, there's other sections on writing, genre, publishing, and media. And we probably could have had more than that, but that was basically how the articles sorted out. There's a few that could basically have been placed in more than one. And we had to make some choices about with the authors themselves about like where they fit best. Um, but with thinking about the sections of the book we really 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 did not want to replicate the state the so-called like stages of the typical writing process i don't know if you've had to t- teach or recently take a composition class um, but we didn't want to replicate that i mean many people in disability studies i'm thinking of robert mcruer who's in the book have critiqued, um, composition classes because they like prioritize efficiency, like streamlined, a streamlined writing process with like really clear stages, um, neutral style, standard grammar, things like that. Um, we didn't want that. Um, so that's why in the book we use this word phase instead of stage. Um, I was originally trained in biology and I I was thinking about phase like the phases of water that, you know, phases can all exist at once. A lake can have ice and liquid and gas parts all at once. It's not necessarily a perfect through line. One doesn't have to go from stage one to stage five. It's nothing like that. Um, So yeah, the phases might involve writing research publishing, but for some people, research is not important. For other people, Crip authorship happens without publishing at all. Um, And again, like what is Crip? What is non-compliant, what is disability specific about authorship might exist in a very patchwork way, like taking place in one or two of those phases, but not all of them at once. That was something that we um really thought about after we read the book, all the articles together as a whole. Um and you know, for me, um, I initially thought i I needed the sections on research and media the most for my own work and and my teaching um. And I ended up learning probably the, mo- the most from the publishing section and the writing section because it was material I hadn't thought about um, as much. I mean, I, I really love Stephanie Rosen's chapter on disability and librarianship in the publishing section. She It's very dense, even though it's short. And it covers a lot of um, about ableism in traditional metadata terminology, Library of Congress cataloging, archival descriptions, and then it offers like critical librarianship and crip librarianship perspectives to change that. Um, and um, the section on writing, we originally were gonna have second. Um, it was gonna come after the research section and it, it became important enough, I think, to all of us and to the readers, peer reviewers and other readers, and um, to be placed first in the book. And it just was brimming with like more topics, more different topics than we expected. There's, you know, as I said, there's like a lot about feelings about writing, temporality of writing, um, writing in more than one language, translation, uh, counter storytelling, um, a lot about like how people relate to writing partners and like collectives, networks of care finance, finances and access that allow people to even have time to write or the means to write. Um, And then like so much about style, diction, new words, like transgressions of grammar, um, you know, writing collectively (laughs) to refuse like the authority of the individual author um all of this i mean the writing section probably we could have had a whole book that was just about writing and composition um and i hope you know now that this book is out in the world that it will more books like this will proliferate and attend to some of those specificities you know research methods in Crip research methods in history um you know crip writing there could there could be for sure an entire collections on those topics alone
0: Awesome. Thank you for speaking to that. And I'll just echo that. There's such rich text throughout the book. And um, I really loved how you and all the contributors brought up a lot of really interesting and thought-provoking aspects to authorship and research and publishing and all the other things that you mentioned. So this next question is kind of two questions, but um, feel free to take it however you would like. In the introduction of the book, um, y'all point out that care collectives are important staples of feminist disability communities, and that these collectives stretch what we understand to be authorship. Would you be willing to share about some of the care collectives that helped make this book possible and how they may have influenced the shape? You've spoken to some of that, but I would also love to speak more in-depthly about the wide array of topics covered. How did you find the contributors to this book and how were these topics conceptualized and incorporated into the book?
1: Speaking for Rebecca, the idea of collaborative creation or authorship gets addressed explicitly in a number of chapters in the book. Isolation, nation's discussion of their creative praxis, Faye Ginsburg and Raina Rapp's description of their collaborations, Allison Kafer and Mel Y. Chen's writing together. and The project as a whole very much emerged out of those kinds of practices. The book was created entirely during the COVID-19 pandemic, so we're very grateful to everyone who is willing to be in conversation with us during this time and to make something together that might highlight some of the ways our communities make things, knowledge, access, genres, et cetera. And to those who weren't able to create a chapter for the book but who generously shared their time and suggestions with us, thank you. The book was really shaped by those conversations about what sections might be called, how chapters might be in dialogue, what was missing from the collection.
2: Yeah, um this is Mara. Again, it was the beginning of the pandemic um when we um, started thinking about the collection. Um so 2020, um I was living alone most of that time in New York City and my loved ones were like scattered around the world. Um so it it did feel a bit like a remote party to get all of these people together um who we some of whom we knew, um some of whom we we didn't know but really admired. Um some of whom were, you know, brought along um, within the network, um, but it was a, you know, a party with a lot of dissensus um, in the best possible way. And I'm so glad we were able to have that those Zoom meetings to get people talking before even full drafts, when very rough drafts or beginnings of like abstracts had been written only, um, because there was a lot of conversation among the authors um, about their work and about keywords and themes. And about things they disagreed about, Um, um, and there is disagreement within the book. Um, So, you know, an edited volume is always a collective effort, um, but we also, you know, really encourage that in our own writing. We we tried to write the introduction as a form of convening, um, convening artists um, um, uh, and activists who we've learned from, as well as citing the authors in the book, Um, just to underscore what Rebecca said. I, you know part of our network of putting this book together includes the people who dropped out along the way because of issues related to the pandemic or people who we invited but who had to say no um for various reasons there were about a dozen or so people um whose work really influenced us who may have even attended some of the early meetings um, but who aren't in the book um but they are in the sense that they're cited and they're they're very much present in their their words and their ideas um Uh, I I also would say uh, feminist disability collectives also span time, like they're not always necessarily co-present. I thought a lot about this um, in writing the section of the introduction about Shulamith Firestone. Um, I spent some time during the pandemic, like wandering outdoors in the city um, since I was here during that time and the city was very changed and um, it was nice to be outside. And at one point I I tried to track down all of the murals uh, that Shulamith Firestone, um, feminist author um, and well-known in the seventies had had created as part of this artist work program that she was in um, in the seventies or uh, like, or at least find the places they were located. And this led me to, for the first time, read her second and final book, Airless Spaces, which I hadn't read before. And opening that book, coincidentally, while working on crip authorship with with Rebecca and looking at the epigraph, the epigraph is all about feminist crip networks um, and how and it was and I loved how explicit it was about how networks really exist behind so many of our books. And um, we don't cite them. We don't give credit to them. So um, Firestone, um, and we write about this in the intro, you know, um, talks about how her book was organized, like. Uh, memoir like fragments of writing that she had written over many many years were even selected by friends of hers for the book typed sent to a publisher and much much more by a collective of her friends it was like she really brings forward that this was this collective effort and um yeah it came out 28 years after the book she was known for dialectic of sex so she also influenced our thinking about collective authorship uh politics of citation um and i would I think now of her as one node in our own feminist disability network because she really supported her writing, um, supported the thinking in our introduction, and it, it raised questions about like, what is required to write, what materials, what resources, and also to publish. Um, yeah, and I, um, I thought a lot about her physical presence in the city because she lived a few blocks from me um, in the East Village, and what it meant for her to spend so much time institutionalized against her will. Um, And, you know, this is the pandemic when people are using in New York, using the word lockdown, calling themselves locked down. And in fact, a lot of, you know, there were people locked down in the city. There's two New Yorks, the New York of people who are incarcerated or otherwise confined, and then non-incarcerated New Yorkers who described pause as lockdown. And, um, you know, it it forced me to think about um, this other New York people in migrant detention centers and group homes, um, institutions, prisons, and it, it that it made it made it very it underscored for us and made it really important for us to to highlight um, um, examples of like radical exclusion. Um, you know, I may have felt isolated during that time. I had an incredible digital access, um, relative freedom of movement. It was easy to call on my network when I wanted to but we have other authors in the book um like Jen Deeringwater whose chapters highlight digital divides um uh, Jen is writing about digital divides for indigenous people and you know a profound lack of in- infrastructure to allow one to be in community um and so that's that's you know what allows a network to exist and and what you know attempts to um Break up or or prevent a network from um, existing are also really important parts of the book.
0: Yeah, thank you for speaking to that and to kind of go back a little bit into earlier parts of our conversation where we were speaking about disability as method and the importance around understanding different methodologies and speaking to that, would you be able to describe this call for engaging disability as method and what it means for disability studies and other fields of inquiry in general? How does this engagement, along with others like recognition of crypistemology, frame the interventions being made in this book throughout the different chapters?
1: Speaking for Rebecca, uh, in their chapter of CRIP making in the book, Amy Humray discusses CRIP as a specific commitment to shifting material arrangements. And that idea of CRIP as praxis of making otherwise, the idea of CRIP itself as method, or an ever-shifting array of methods, was really important to us in considering the many things disability is and does. Lots of that work doesn't involve the word disability and what the field of disability studies is and does, what we want and need it to do. Yeah,
2: I'm so glad Rebecca brought that up because much of the book is all is both about disability as method and about disability, the content or the subject is also disability, but it doesn't have to be that way. We can think of many examples where disability is a method in a field or on a topic seemingly remote from disability. And we cite Tobin Siebers for his work on disability aesthetics, where he applies the con- concepts and um, uh, tools of disability aesthetics to artworks in the Western canon that might not immediately seem to be about disability. So the same is true in our book. Um, just to be like a, a little more, I know we've been talking about method this whole time, but try, to try to be a little more explicit to answer your question, like, you know, we we began by not thinking about explicitly, not trying to do a methods in disability studies book, um, but to really think about what it would mean to have disability as method be our guiding phrase. This is a phrase that many different scholars have used over the past decade um, to shift the field away from questions of representation um, or content or identity um, to questions of methodology itself to understanding disability as a creative force but you know, a method, if we were thinking in terms of methods in disability studies alone, we could have ended up with a book that um, just involved methods created outside of disability worlds for studying disability as an object, not disability itself as a source of methodology. Um, and that's what we were, were aiming for. Um, I had, um, I guess, in, I think it was 2017, wrote something about disability as method with um, my colleague, Jonathan Stern. Um, in this book, Disability Media Studies. Um, and I was aware at that time of other people working on that phrase in media studies, like Arceli um, who had written earlier about disability as a methodology for thinking about disabled people's media making or media alteration um, to um, for inclusion or or for all sorts of other purposes. Um, but we, we, as Rebecca and I were working on this book, we be, we realized how many different people had used the phrase disability as method. It's often in very distinct and sometimes even differing ways. So people like, um, scholars like Gina Kim and Michelle Friedner have used the phrase um, to think about methods of communicating disability aesthetics and also just unsettling disability as an identity, um, unsettling the English language word disability and its, its um, North American meanings. Um, those are um, we try to do our best to cite the many other ways disability as method has registered in the introduction. Um, it's a really, um, productive phrase. And I, I think there's much, much, much more to be done, um, on it. Um, so yeah, um, some of our authors, when they were writing about disability as method, they were writing about, um, a technique, a media form an experience. But there were others that were more interested in disabled knowledge and thought, and I, that's where kripistemology, which you mentioned, uh, becomes important. Um, and kripistemology, this term, which we, um, it's not a guiding term for the volume, but we just could we uh, you know, we couldn't avoid thinking alongside it. It's an important concept in the field. It's Mary Lisa Johnson and Robert McRuhr's t- term for disabled ways of thinking and knowing and telling, disability epistemology to disa- epistemology uh, So, you know, some of the method is in the book is about products and technologies. Some is more about practices or techniques, and some has more to do with um, thinking and being.
0: Awesome, thank you for speaking to that. And this next question is specifically for you, Dr. Mills. You collaborated on an essay with Kristen Bowen and Rachel Kuo called Hashtag Disability Studies Too White. In this piece, you conducted an empirical study that examined racial disparities in authorship and citation practices in disability studies publication in the past 10 years, as well as the extent to which authors engaged with disability and race in their pieces in meaningful ways. Could you speak to why it is important to reflect on these questions?
2: Absolutely. I'm so glad you asked this also, um, so yeah, much of Crip authorship, much of the book is a celebration or at least a foregrounding of um, the range of work happening in uh, disability studies and and arts and activism. But we also wanted to include some very necessary auto critique of the field. Um, the field has been around for decades now. Um, even if we think of um, the question of methods or having a methods anthology as somewhat newer, in the field. The field itself has, has been around for a much longer time growing out of disability activism, um, in, in the sixties and seventies. Well, and I'm a historian, so I would say even much, much earlier. And, um, but we, it, it's necessary to critique the field as well. And, and part of um, Crip theorizing, um, and part of Crip method is about auto critique and about revising, um, one's methods. So, um, this chapter was really driven by the work of Rachel Kuo. Um, Rachel was a grad student in the Department of Media, Culture and Communication at NYU. She's now a professor at um, Urbana-Champaign and a fantastic scholar. Um, She works on race and media, um, won tons of awards. I, I recommend everyone to look her up. So she was previously part of a team um, that published a really groundbreaking article in the communication field called Hashtag Communication So White. And she co-authored that with um, Paula Chakravarty and Charlton McElwain and Victoria Grubbs. And talking to Rachel, who I've worked with on a couple of projects related to um, disability um, and specifically to race and disability, we thought we might replicate that um, for thinking about uh, publishing in disability studies, specifically journal publishing and anthologies. And Rachel suggested bringing in um, her one of her colleagues or former colleagues at her, the previous school, she was at, Kristen Bowen, um, who has quantitative training, which is incredibly helpful, um, as well as disability um, experience and training. So what we did was we, we um, conducted a similar audit to Communication So White of publishing um, in the principal um, longstanding disability studies journals and anthologies um, to see if the argument that Christopher Bell, a really important Black disabled scholar, made, you know, oh my gosh, um, over 10 years ago, that what went under the name of disability studies was often, in fact, an unmarked white disability studies. And we wanted to see if that was still true. Obviously, we're also very um, influenced in our title. And also we we cite her by... um, Activist Melissa Thompson. Um, So, thinking alongside Melissa and Christopher Thompson and Christopher Bell, um, we basically wanted to know, you know, in the decade, more than a decade now, that has passed since the publication of his uh, 2012 book *Blackness and Disability* um, and the articles he published before that book came out, has anything changed? There's been a lot of citation of his work, um, or a comparative lot of citation of his work. Um, And there's a growing number of um, alternate genealogies for disability studies being proposed, emerging from fields like black feminist disability studies. Um, Looking at like the field as a whole, and especially looking at self-proclaimed journals of disability studies, are there more authors of color being published in the field? Um, And is there more work about race in the field? Um, Rachel in her previous project was also interested in citation patterns. Um, but to speak to Chris Bell's concern, because that was one of our uh, sort of guiding, the thing that guided us into this, we focused on authorship and also topic. Um, and, you know, it, it was tricky to do this. We, we actually spent a long time thinking about our own methods <laughs> in that, that short article. It was tricky because so much disability theorizing just doesn't take place. In self-proclaimed disability studies journals, as a field, you know there are there are journals that have existed for decades, but there aren't very many departments of disability studies. Most of us who enter the field didn't get trained in it, um, especially those of us in um, even well in our forties like me, but also people in their thirties. Um, it um, So you're getting trained in other fields, you're getting hired into other kinds of departments, and you're publishing in those fields rather than DS, rather than disability studies. But we had to keep a sort of narrow focus um, for the article and just for being able to do the count. It was an audit of thousands and thousands of of articles and authors. um, Keeping that narrow focus um, on self-proclaimed disability studies journals um, you know, we still had some surprising findings. We were really surprised first off to find that edited collections like our own, um, published, you know, books that are edited by one or more editors it tend to be more or I mean, tend to be less diverse in terms of, um, race um, and ethnicity and also geography of, um, peer reviewed journals. We didn't expect that because peer reviewed journals are restricted to submissions and a peer review. Whereas an edited collection can conceivably include anything from longer periods of time, but they—it turns out that peer, certain peer-reviewed journals like DSQ are, over the past decade, have incre- been been slowly but increasingly become more diverse. But um, edited collections haven't been so. That made us, you know, we we come up with some thoughts about that and some recommendations about co-editorship and pulling people together from different fields and and different. Um, backgrounds and also different places, ideally. Um, You know, the other sort of moment of hope is that there are several new international DS journals that have been founded in the last few years that we cite. We didn't put them in our audit because some of them had just launched, like (laughs) the year we started this, 2020, and there was nothing to count yet. We were looking at things, we were looking back across a decade, but we, thinking about the new journals that are being founded outside of North America, um, there's also, um, or if not just, or there's also a great one in Hawaii, and I'm embarrassed that I'm now forgetting the name of that journal that is has an international focus. Um, we think those journals are spurring more change too. So yeah, that that article was about critique, auto critique as a, as a crucial crip method for disability studies. I'm glad you brought that up.
0: Awesome. Thank you for speaking to that. It was really enlightening just to read about a lot of the findings that you and your colleagues had and like what you spoke to between the scholarly journals and the edited volumes. That's really insightful to know. And in order to actually like, you know, hopefully make things better, an audit like the one that y'all performed is very important. So um, wrapping this up, I would love to talk a little bit more about the scope of the book, some of the different topics that y'all mentioned. There are so many issues regarding accessibility, disability justice, and authorship, and we've talked about many of those, but I would love to give you the opportunity to just speak to whether there are any topics that you're especially excited for readers to get into, and it may just be something that we haven't spoken about yet in this interview. As an example. I was really surprised to learn about the Helen Keller Archive and its status as the first fully accessible digital archive. Having some experience with making digital materials and websites accessible, that essay left me really marveling at the investment and intensive collaboration that was involved in that process and how this brings a new meaning to authorship because you're not just making the digital archive, but you're making it accessible for people of all different needs, say like screen readers or transcription or anything else. So I would love to just give you space to talk about if there's any topics you're super excited for readers to dive into.
2: Oh, totally. Yeah. Thanks, Clayton. This is Mara again. Um, This is a question that um Rebecca didn't chime in on, although I know she has tons of favorites, but I won't speak for her, for her. I'll just say a you know, shout out to Helen Selsden, um, the former archivist at the Helen Keller Archive. That archive has recently moved from the American Foundation for the Blind here in New York to the American Printing House for the Blind in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, both, uh, you know, very long-standing um, centers for blind publication, archiving, and research. The APH is you know, a, a long-standing world leader in accessible publishing for blind people in all across lots and lots of formats. And um, I'm glad you brought this up, because even in the process of making this book, we've actually called on Helen and the APH for a su- advice, a, a troubleshooting about whether the versions of our book we're putting online are actually accessible. And I should even say they have come to us with complaints that they weren't. And it's unfair. For um, blind readers um, and you know blind workers at places like the APH to have to do that labor, so um, yeah, it's very hard to make a book or a website truly accessible. I mean, universal accessibility is probably not possible. Amy Hamraei has published um, in, you know importantly on the idea of access friction and um, the fact that you know even if something is is Meant to be as accessible as possible. Often, accommodations that people need might come into conflict with one another. We, nevertheless, we tried to make it as accessible as possible, given who our authors are and who we are. And um, you know, it, it's not difficult because accessibility itself has to be hard. Um, but because the platforms and laws that govern publishing themselves generate exclusion, and like norms around cost for um, you know, publishing things online or hiring um, web designers it, it make o- open access publishing really expensive. You know, it tend We canvassed a bunch of different presses, and they all said ten dollars to $15,000 paid up front to have an OA version. And OA is just one, e- one version of an ebook, it's a version that's free online. There's all sorts of other platforms hosting Crip Authorship as an ebook, from JSTOR to Project Muse to Kindle. Each one of those has its own accessibility issues. So, you know, eBooks aren't instantly accessible, even though people think they are, neither is OA, um, at least with OA, you don't need a paid subscription, um, which is so prohibitively expensive around the world. Um, but most of those eBooks don't have, um, for instance, braille ready file formatting for people using text to braille readers. Um, So, you know, we raised a bunch of money for OA. We raised money to pay proofreaders. um, And, you know, we're still even now coming across glitches on various platforms um, or complaints from like Helen and the APH. And we're we're (laughs) iteratively repairing those or changing those. So um, initially we invited Helen to write that chapter because we didn't just want to have disability historians talking about their methods. Um, We wanted an archivist to talk about what needs to happen to even make disability history in an archive possible. Um, and that the chapters we have written by archivists and librarians are written in slightly different registers than the chapters written by um, academics. And again, than the chapters written by activists. And I'm just really glad that you liked that chapter because I don't it, it. I've worked in the Helen Keller archive. It was shocking to me as well as to Helen how inaccessible it was to the blind, deaf, and deafblind communities represented in the archive itself, almost entirely inaccessible. And she made it, along with a team, really her late career's work to write a bunch of NEH and other grants, and over many years, um, make it an accessible archive, and then to start publishing about what that would even mean so other people ideally could replicate that. So, yes, I highly recommend for people to read that article about what is an accessible archive? How digital tools can help make a print archive accessible, and how many people are ex- excluded from writing their own histories um, because of problems with archival inaccessibility. We have we have, you know other chapters think are looking more at terminology. This is like Stephanie Rosen, um cataloging and um, misconceptions or or inaccessibility that come up by being, taken by the Library of Congress down false paths (laughs) in their cataloging um, systems, rather than just like share and accessibility. So yes, I love that reading too. Um, There's a lot of friction about accessibility itself in the volume. And I would say I love all of those readings individually, but I especially love pairing them. Um, So I am definitely gonna teach Kelsey Acton on plain language alongside Mel Chen's chapter which um, has a critique of the fiction of universal access and instead argues for complexity as a crip mode of writing. You know, For Mel, complexity might be related to brain fog. It might be a mode of critiquing like corporate efficiency and clarity that might be important. For Kelsey, Kelsey writes, I just love, I love this piece. Kelsey writes in plain language about the history and politics of plain language. So, it's like modeling plain language while historicizing it and talking about its politics. Um, and Kelsey's very careful to mention the critiques as well, but also talks about um, especially autistic um, involvement in developing plain language, new modes of plain language for a crip community. So, I love pairing. Personally, if you ask me about art articles I love, I especially like reading some of them together. Um, another example of this, and maybe, maybe that's enough, is just. Um, there are there's a tension between authors for whom crip authorship means altering existing platforms or methods or tools by making them accessible, by bringing um, disabled people in. And for some of our other authors, what is crip about crip authorship is making entirely new media, crip world making, crip media making. It's not about access, it's about like, re- more about like revolution, um, so Georgina Klieg um, and Brie M both discuss access in podcasting and radio. Um, and their focus is on on access, especially audio description, um, which we kind of started with uh, to you know describing in, verbally objects and images um, to convey them to blind and sighted audiences. Uses of transcripts, as you mentioned, Clayton, um, to make a podcast accessible for deaf audiences. We'll do that for this interview. But then we have another author, um, Teresa Blankmeyer Burke, who talks about the ethics of ASL publishing, and really the imperative to have bilingual publishing. We, we we don't have that for this book, not yet. We've covered a lot of bases as we've tried to produce this book in many different formats. We don't have an ASL version of the book, so we are not doing that that. Deaf authorship, that ver- that form of crip authorship that Teresa writes about. Um, what what is an ASL book? What's a video based ASL book? Um Teresa's a philosopher, so she's pr- both pragmatic and philosophical about this. This is a really profound rethinking of what a book can be. It's not about access. It's about starting from a language community and deaf history and rethinking the book from there rather than about, you know, working with books as they are in, in a particular language and, and um, adapting them. So, yeah, I mean, and I love I love reading again. I like putting together articles that have a tension or friction between them, because this is really what Rebecca and I had to do to write the introduction. And this is where we came to our our, um, our thinking about how um, you know, we see disabled people taking apart and protesting and altering and generating new media. New modes of communication across this book these are the things we we mean um by crip authorship
0: awesome thank you for speaking to that just describing some of those chapters makes me want to go back and read them again just to you know dive back into those conversations but Just to everybody listening, I highly, highly recommend reading this book, all the chapters. There's so much rich material in it. So thank you so much, Dr. Mills and Dr. Sanchez. I really appreciated our conversation today. And thank you for all the work that it took to bring this book about. I know it's no small task, so kudos to y'all. And I really hope everyone can get a chance to pick up the book or um, listen to it online or or see the ebook. So, thank, thank you. you so much for joining. Thank you me. so
2: much, Clayton. And I just want to thank all of the authors who contributed too. And some of the events we're doing were backgrounding our perspectives more and trying to um, h- highlight um, the authors themselves. Um, obviously, for this podcast, it, it's a, a little bit easier to have uh, just the two of us. But I, I want to end on the note of thanking everyone who wrote for the book.